Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Odyssey is giving you a chance to win a trip to London to see Taylor Swift at the Eras Tour. It's Tay in the UK. Hey, it's Taylor. Just download the free Odyssey app, log in and listen to a participating station for a minimum of 60 minutes to get your daily entry. And you could win a chance to fly off to London with three friends and see Taylor. I can't wait to see you at the Eras Tour in London. For more, go to odyssey.com slash Taylor. Tay in the UK. It's on the Odyssey app. Thanks to Republic Records. This is a national contest. Welcome to the show. Happy Wednesday. Thanks for being here. Oh my God, we're almost through the week. We've almost made it. We're close to the finish line. Honestly, pat yourself on the back. You deserve. Thank you so much. I needed that positivity today. You know, I've been waking up earlier, you know, to get my morning routine in. What's early? And for me, early is six-ish. Because okay. I was never a 6 a.m. person, let me tell you. I like being in bed. The I have problem a is wait real what? quick before you tell yes. us the problem. Is that because your boyfriend makes you wake up that early? No, I've started to do it because I was just so anxious when I'd wake up because I'd wake up and it'd be like just everything coming at me. That's a lot to take in when you have like texts and emails and you're just like, I can't even wake up and just move into it slowly. Mm, okay. Anyway, but the problem is uh, that works most of the time, unless, uh, but it doesn't work if you're staying up until midnight, like on TikTok or something. Nope, it does not work. Nope. <laughs> so word of advice work. from the wise, you know, if you want to change up your life, you might not want to end your night uh, doom scrolling social media. You know, I've actually started to back to going to bed around 9.30. Yeah. Literally. I 9, love that. And I wake up in the morning at six and yeah, it just, it works. It, it really does make you just feel better. That works. It does not work if you're going to get less sleep, literally. Yeah. I mean, you've answered your own question here. Thank you. I'm like my own therapist. I don't even need to pay my therapist anymore. She's fired. Okay. Now, coming up on the show, how President Biden could solve food insecurity while he's in office, plus a focus on the power of Black women during Black History Month. We've got the culture editor of HuffPost joining us for that. She wrote an incredible feature on this topic, and we're so excited to have her on the show today. Uh, but first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. In a hearing for President Biden's nominee for Education Secretary today, Senator Rand Paul pressed Dr. Miguel Cardona to weigh in on the ongoing debate about how transgender students should compete in sports, describing the concept of students competing with their uh, corresponding gender identity as bizarre and repeatedly mislabeling transgender girls as boys. And here's the nominee shutting him down. So you don't have a problem then with boys running in the girls track meet, swimming meets, name it. You're okay then with boys competing with girls? Respectfully, Senator, I think I answered the question. I believe schools should offer the opportunity for students to engage in extracurricular activities, even if they're transgender. I think that's their right. All right. Well, a lot of us think that that's bizarre, you know, not very fair. And that clip right now is being shared everywhere. It's unfortunate that he even had to answer in this way and explain all of this yeah it really it really is it's so annoying mm -hmm. now about 70 percent to 85 percent of the u.s population should be fully vaccinated against covid19 before the country can begin to return to a sense of normalcy and that comes from dr anthony fauci uh, so far though less than two percent about of Americans have received both dose, doses of the COVID-19 vaccine, according to data from the CDC. So yeah, we need 70 to 85%. We've got 2%. Across the US, nearly 34 million COVID-19 vaccine doses have been administered with more than 27 million people having received at least one dose or just over 8% of the population. About 6.4 million people have received both doses. We've got a ways to go. Fauci said he's hopeful the country can get to that high level of vaccinations by the end of the summer to the beginning of fall. Just in time for the holidays. 
And finally, more than 370 Capitol Hill staffers signed an open letter to senators asking them to convict Trump. This request stems from Trump's, quote, role in inciting the violent attack at the Capitol. For our sake and the sake of the country, we ask that they vote to convict the former president and bar him from ever holding him in office again. And that was what's trending this hour, what's happening in entertainment news, Ryan. Yeah, I guess one thing will never change. The internet will always find a reason to drag one of the Kardashians. It's time for your team report. Those pop culture stories trending right now. So the latest Kardashian to be called out is Khloe Kardashian. Um, She's being called out for using a dark skinned emoji. Now, Mm. this may seem silly for some, but it's generally an accepted practice on the internet that your emoji matches your actual skin tone. So when the Good American founder posted a string of dark skin face palm emojis on Twitter, people immediately took notice. Um, Uh Besides the obvious reasons why this made people mad, she actually used a lighter skinned emoji the day before. So people like didn't really understand the change. And of course it's Black History Month and people were like, oh, so you get a you get a tan and you get to just change your skin tone of emoji. So I guess my question is, what do you think? And are people honestly just bored at this point? I feel like they do, um, they have embraced black culture. So there's this feeling, I feel like from them that they, which has been an issue, right? With the or the hair, what's called Kim Kardashian with her hair that time, the braids and. Yeah, they've, yeah. they've all done it, but it's, I don't think it's embracing. I think it's, um, it can be seen as kind of, uh, you know, colonizing it, stealing it, making it seem like they came up with it and they get the praise for it when, you know, people don't, people of color, black folks don't really get the praise for it. But I think it's just interesting that we've seen um, Kim do something that was kind of trolling and then Chloe kind of do something that's like trolling and no one really has an explanation for it. It's just like, yeah, maybe we shouldn't be like thinking too much into it. But when people constantly are feeling like, you know, the Kardashians put themselves in a cultural place that they don't really necessarily belong. Mm-hmm. Well, that's another I question. Think yeah, that another is thing. the issue. And so, yeah. But would you consider them white or like, isn't there they are something? white? They're, they're are they white, white women? They're Armenian, I, but they are white women. Their they're not like brown. Yeah, that's me. They yeah, dye yeah. their, I mean, they tan their skin. They dye their skin. I mean, they, they basically, they tan their skin permanent to be darker. They, like, that's okay. just what it is. That's your tea report. I got more coming up next hour. <laughs> Now, coming up, uh, a Senate power sharing agreement has been reached. What that even means moving forward, that's next with The Washington Post. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced today that he and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell have reached a deal on a power sharing agreement for governing the upper chamber. Does this mean they're like all good with each other? We're not going to see them fight as much what is in the this, next high four school? years? I don't know. Talusa LaRanifa is back with us, who's a political investigative reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for being here. Yeah, glad to be with y'all. So what is a power sharing agreement exactly? Is this pretty much normal as a transition like this happens? Well, it's not normal for us to have a 50-50 Senate. There are 100 senators, but it's very rare for it to be split right down the middle. There's usually one party in power. But because of the two Georgia Senate runoffs that went to Democrats, uh, the Senate right now is 50-50 with the tie being broken by the vice president, who happens to be a Democrat, Kamala Harris. And for that reason, you know, the Senate has to come up with some kind of power sharing agreement. Usually the majority uh, party is able to create the rules, decide on committee assignments, decide who runs the show. But when it's 50-50, the two sides have to sort of meet in the middle and figure out an agreement. So it took a while for this to actually come come to come to fruition. It took a while for them to agree. Um, but when it's 50-50 split right down the middle, both sides have to come to an agreement. And eventually they did that. And that's what uh, was uh, put into place today. And now Democrats can officially start taking over, start running some of these committees, start setting some of the rules, um, even though it's 50-50 because of the White House being in Democratic hands. Democrats are effectively in charge of the Senate, but it took a while for them to actually be able to bring that into reality. Um, you know, even though the Georgia runoffs were, you know, almost a month ago now, it took several weeks for uh, the Democrats and Republicans to 
agree on how they're going to share, share power in the Senate. Yeah, because uh, McConnell initially asked that Senate Democrats commit to protecting the uh, legislative filibuster as a part of the agreement. Why is that so important to him and Senate Republicans? So the, the filibuster is the only thing really stopping Democrats from barreling over Republicans and doing whatever they want with their bare majority. The filibuster requires 60 votes to move any major pieces of legislation. And the minority power, the minority party has used that power for decades to stop policy from moving forward, to have a say in the legislative process. And Mitch McConnell, who was the majority leader, now realizes that he does not have the power that he once had to, you know, make bills disappear. And without the filibuster, he is really not going to have any power at all. And Democrats would be able to enact all kinds of different policies. So he wanted to get that agreement as saying that the filibuster, which has been in place for several decades, would continue to be in place so that the Democrats would not, quote unquote, go nuclear and get rid of the filibuster. And uh, he essentially tried to get that from Democrats, but he was not able to secure that commitment. But a couple of Democrats said, you know, we're not on board with getting rid of the filibuster. So it seems like that provision is going to stay in place, at least for the short term, with uh, Democrats and Republicans split right down the middle. Uh, they're likely still going to have to be bipartisan to get a lot of major policy through. Um, it's not going to be something that can be done with just one party support. So that was why Mr. McConnell wanted to preserve and, and get on the record that Democrats would not get rid of the filibuster. He wasn't able to get it officially, but he sort of got an official kind of answer. And that was enough for him, it seemed. Uh, again, you're hearing from Tolusa Larenipa, who's from the Washington Post. Now, will this agreement help in the negotiations for the stimulus bill? Or are we going to see the same uh, conflict that we saw last year? No, one thing I forgot to mention about the filibuster is a little bit of a loophole, which is if you're working on a budgetary issue like taxes, like spending, then you can move forward with only 50 votes. You don't have to have the supermajority of 60 oh. votes. So the stimulus bill is one thing that, you know, President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris have said that they want to be bipartisan. They want to get both sides to agree. They'd like to get more than 60 votes, but they're moving on a separate track that if they can't get Republicans on board, that they would continue to move forward with this, you know, budget provision, which is called reconciliation, which would allow them to just use their 50 votes and get it across the finish line and get potentially $1.9 trillion of stimulus into the economy, including $1,400 checks for the vast majority of Americans, expanded unemployment benefits, expanded support for business, more money for vaccines and to go to schools. So right now, it seems like Democrats are prepared to do it on a party line basis with just 50 votes, but they're leaving open the opportunity that if Republicans want to cooperate and you know be bipartisan, then they would try to do it with more than 50 votes and maybe even cross the 60 vote threshold. So this power sharing agreement is somewhat relevant in that, you know, Democrats could still move forward even if they don't have 60 votes. But for now, they're saying that they want to be bipartisan and get Republicans on board. But at some point, they're going to have to pull the trigger and say, you know, Republicans aren't cooperating. We need to make yeah. sure that people get this money and we're going to go with 50 votes. Well, Toulouse Olorenipa, again from The Washington Post, is with us. You're going to be uh, coming back with us after the break because we're getting into this drama. Democrats are making Marjorie Taylor Greene into the face of the GOP, it seems. But could that work against them? That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Democrats are going in hard against Marjorie Taylor Greene, ousting her from her committee responsibilities. And the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee is also launching a $500,000 TV and online ad blitz against vulnerable House Republicans that tie them to Greene and to her support of the QAnon conspiracy theory. Uh, back with us is Toulouse Olorunipa, political investigative reporter at The Washington Post. Wow. So, Toulouse, um, is this going to create more problems than solutions at this point? Because th this uh, might become a big distraction. Or at this point, should they just oust her right now and call it a day? So this is definitely going to cause problems and distractions for Republicans who do not want to be focusing on QAnon and conspiracy theories right at the moment where they're trying to think about how they can get back into power in Washington. Um, they're going to be spending much of the next few weeks not only focusing on President Trump's impeachment trial, but also on what to do about Representative Mark.
Reed Taylor Greene, who has become the face of the party in many respects because she's sucking up all the oxygen of the party. She continues to drive news headlines. She continues to be in the news because she uh, talks about all of these various conspiracy theories. Theories. She says that 9-11 didn't really happen, the Pentagon wasn't hit by a plane, that you know some of these mass shootings that have happened at schools were false flag events, all kinds of falsehoods that she's spewing. And Republicans are trying to figure out whether or not to expel her from the party, punish her by taking her off of committees, maybe even take her out of Congress, which would be a pretty extreme uh, you know, result. But right now she's causing headaches and problems for the party. But at the same time, she represents a large chunk of the Republican base. She has the support of President Trump. And they haven't figured out how to respond to the fact that much of their party, much of many of their voters, like people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who are willing to espouse conspiracy theories and push back against the opposition and embrace even violent rhetoric uh, to show that they're fighting for you know whatever cause is uh, is in focus at the moment. And you know Republicans just don't know what to do about her, and it seems like they're trying to figure it out uh, without much success so far. I wonder with House Democrats thinking this is the the big step that they should make, is it really a smart decision to kind of put all their eggs in this one basket? Because it seems like the base that supports Trump or supporting Marjorie isn't really going anywhere at this point. So how do they kind of navigate that space? And is this the right way of doing it? Yeah, this is a it's a great question because uh, the Democrats want to silence uh, people like this this congresswoman, mm-hmm. but they are playing with fire because they are, as we saw on January 6th, that there are thousands, if not millions of people who support this kind of politics and getting rid of one person, getting rid of one representative or silencing them is not going to solve the root cause of the problem of the fact that there are millions of Americans who do believe in QAnon and other conspiracy theories that just don't have any basis. In fact, whether they read it on the internet or they got shared something on Facebook and they just got, you know, they, ended up getting sucked into this vortex, there is a big problem that, that it's facing a large chunk of the country. And you know, Democrats also have to realize that people voted for this representative. They knew her record. They knew what she had talked about. She had espoused some of these conspiracy theories before she got elected and she got elected anyways. So you know, they could try to get kick her out of Congress, but you know, what are you gonna do about the hundreds of thousands of voters that voted for her? and the millions of voters who support her and who have donated to her campaign and donated to her cause. So it's a big problem and it's something that uh, is bigger than just one person and getting rid of just one person will not solve that problem. Definitely. Again, you're hearing from Talusa Loranipa from the Washington Post. Now, what about the GOP calling out Elon Omar and trying to oust her because the Democrats are trying to oust Marjorie Taylor Greene? Where would this all land right now? This could get messy. It could get messy, and someone has said that this essentially ensures that there will be mutually assured destruction in that, you know, Democrats will start kicking out Republican members of Congress when Republicans get in in power and they see or hear something that they don't like from a Democratic Congress member, that they'll kick that person out of Congress, and it will just set us down a really messy and and nasty path. Um, We we have heard Republicans sort of use this whataboutism to say, yeah, our congressperson's a little kooky, but what about Representative Omar, who said all kinds of crazy things last year and who, uh, you know, pushed forward policies and ideas that we think are too far beyond the pale and too extreme. When we get back in power, maybe we'll file a resolution to kick her off of her committees or to kick her out of Congress. So that is something that we're we're grappling with at this moment. We have not had a a party in power kick out a member from a minority in in the past without it being bipartisan. So that's something that they're going to have to work on and and figure out whether or not they want to go down this path and what the consequences may be in the future if they lose power and all of a sudden some of their members have to watch their tongues and maybe kicked out of Congress because of what they say. Yeah. Again, that was Tolusa Olornipa, a political investigative reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Now coming up on the show, the American Girl doll with an LGBT plus storyline is here and some collectors lost their minds over it. We'll tell you why next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. For the first time, the popular American Girl franchise, you know, those creepy dolls. Well, they've released a doll with an LGBT plus storyline, which is good. 
And then of course there are the homophobes who are trying to stage a boycott over the doll company. Really? Come on. Uh, this is the whole thing. So each of these dolls, I guess, has a storyline. I didn't know this. I have never been really into the girl uh, doll thing, American girl, whatever. And I have no kids. But so this um, storyline has to do with uh, this girl that's 10 years old. She loves animals. It's called Kira Down Under. So she goes to Australia to spend the summer at her aunt's wildlife sanctuary. And the book casually mentions that the two women got married after the law was changed to allow it. And this is the first time, Ryan, a same-sex relationship has been mentioned in a story for American Girl. And for some, it was a step too far. Yeah, I think the first thing that I think we should acknowledge, and this may be a general stereotype, mm -hmm. um, but every time I see like an adult or someone that has like tons of these toys or dolls, I think of serial killers. Um, I think it is important to say that, but I also want to acknowledge that it could be a stereotype. Not everyone is killing folks because they like these dolls. Second, it's, these It's like dolls, my love of trolls, you know. You like trolls? I used to collect trolls when I was younger, but my Younger, mom I said them. adults. Yeah, yeah I would have had them if I was, if my mom kept them. Anyway, continue. That's weird. Um, well, <laughs> also, um, I think it's super important to talk about, in my opinion, how problematic American Girl dogs are anyway, because like their black doll is like running away from slavery or something. And it's just, it feels what? weird. Like their their dolls are based in historical um, time periods, right? And the one black doll I remember a couple years ago, I went with a friend who is one of those people who is an adult. She still likes the American Girl dolls and all these things. And we went into the store here in Los Angeles and the one black doll they had was literally a, do a, a girl whose family was running away from slavery. And I'm just like, what is this? Um, but I, I find it to be interesting as I wrap up here is like, I find it to be interesting okay, yeah. that the world continues to want to like push these like cis heteronormative views on us, like literally shove them down our throats. But the one second that they mentioned that this girl has two aunts who owns a sanctuary, all hell breaks loose. It, it really makes no sense to me. Just stop sexualizing everything. And that's what takes the inappropriateness of these things, right? And I think um, people just need to get over themselves. Yeah, the, uh, people are saying children are innocent. They shouldn't have to read about sex. They're not. What? Who's having sex? Who's literally having about? sex? That is people sexualizing these two aunts that are literally living their best lesbian life on their wildlife sanctuary. Yeah, let them live uh, a free, good life. Homosexuality is an inappropriate topic for a children's book. And I am very disappointed that it was woven so blatantly into the storyline for Kira. Another person, it says it's inappropriate, far too mature for young readers. Now, this is a narrative, and we can't really get into this right now, but people just think, like, how young is too young to introduce these types of things uh, to uh, young people? Are and they saying like, the same thing when they're looking at, you know, billboards with two a man and a woman kissing or bare naked? It's it, They're not saying that same stuff when it comes to, like, queer folks. Like, it's just, it makes no, it makes no sense. The argument is like not valid. It's whack. So I guess what we could all do in order uh, to support this uh, Cura Down Under is go get that doll. No, and, I'll just go to therapy. Fight against the hobophobes. Go to therapy and work out your crap, everyone. Uh, now coming up on the show, new research that reveals what age group is responsible for nearly half of new cases of COVID-19. That next on What's Trending This Hour. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show, how Biden plans to end food insecurity for good, plus a tribute to Black women and Black trans women in honor of Black History Month with the culture editor of HuffPost. That is later this hour. But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. Leaders in Congress pay tribute to fallen U.S. Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick, who lay in honor today at the Capitol before moving to Arlington National Cemetery. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi praised the 42-year-old officer as a hero for his efforts January 6th to stop a pro-Trump mob that stormed the Capitol. Uh, trying to stop the congressional counting of electoral college votes for then President-elect Joe Biden. Here's a bit of what she had to share. Our promise to Brian's family is that we will never forget his sacrifice. We must be vigilant as what President Lincoln referred to as the harsh artillery of time. We will never forget. With your permission, 
May we be worthy to carry Brian in our hearts. We will never forget. I, I love seeing President Biden uh, go out there and actually pay tribute um, as well. He did that uh, because we have yet to see Donald Trump even after his presidency, even mention this guy or even talk about this person. Um, and I think it's really sad that, you know, people who support Trump don't see that for what it is, right? He never cared about him. He never cared about these following or group of people. So I don't know. It's, it's sad. Now, for months, public health officials have said that younger adults have been big drivers of the spread of COVID-19 in the U.S. We've even you know, drag the younger folks. But new research suggests that there's another age group that may be fueling new cases of the virus. People aged 35 to 49. I told you, oh, Shira no. is always I, the I'm reason. In that group. She is, she is, she is in that group. It's Shira's fault. Uh, that's the conclusion of a just released study from the UK's Imperial College London. And it analyzed mobility data, which is basically your phone data, uh, of more than 10 million Americans between early February and late October, 2020. The researchers concluded in the study that the majority of COVID-19 infections originated from people between the ages of 20 and 49, but 35 to 49, most responsible, 41.1% of the new cases. Those in their late 30s and 40s uh, were consistent across the country. Yeah, so that that's basically it. I'm you're actually blaming, really you're blaming us. I mean, to be honest, I'm actually really upset with my mom. I we got into an oh. argument today because um, she works at a medical college. She's a dean of a medical college, mm -hmm. and she did not go get the vaccine because she is still nervous and hesitant about it. She wants to. She's going to get it, but she was just like, "Yeah, I could have gotten it already. They have it. At, they've been oh, giving it." Wow. I'm like, "Are you kidding me?" And we talked about it. And I was just like, "Don't make me come down there." and force them to put it in your arm because it's like i just i understand the hesitancy but it's also annoying it's really frustrating so yeah uh, that yeah happens. i'm sure a lot of uh kids with their parents are feeling that way you know i'm sure that is happening and a lot of people are actually i've seen videos of friends bringing their parents to get it and finally a proposed law in the state of virginia would repeal the state's criminalization of the transmission of hiv and would end the crime of donating blood or body tissue while having hiv or the hepatitis b or c viruses uh, the bill repeals the crime of infected sexual battery as exposing or transmitting hiv which is currently classified as under that law and if passed it would end virginia's uh, time as one of 37 states that criminalizes people living with the virus and that was what's trending this hour, what's happening in entertainment news, Ryan. So we normally don't talk about country music here, but one country star is having to apologize after using the N-word. It's time for your tea report. Those pop culture stories trending right now. So you may remember hearing the name Morgan Wallen. Um, you know, the guy who was booked to perform on SNL, but ended up being caught partying maskless and kissing girls in the club. Well, he's back in hot water. In a new video obtained by TMZ, you can um, he can be seen walking to his Nashville home and telling someone to take care of this blank, blank mf'er, take care of this blank ass N-word. Oh. Whoa. Um, Morgan Wallen has, uh, of course, apologized, saying, I'm embarrassed and sorry I used an unacceptable and inappropriate racial slur that I wish I could take back. There are no excuses, blah, 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 blah. So this guy's had quite the year. One, he was kicked off performing on SNL, and then this, I mean, if yeah. there's a bad place, he might end up there. Oh, he's most definitely going to end up there. Multiple country stars like Mickey Guyton, who is a black woman in country, spoke out saying this is not his first time using that unacceptable slur, um, and we've all known that. So what exactly are y'all going to do about it? Crickets won't work this time. So let us know on social, what do you think? Is this the end of the sky, or will he continue to have a career i got more t report coming up next hour uh, next up on the show will president biden achieve something no other president has an end to food insecurity we look at that next let's go there with shira and ryan the new channel q food insecurity in the u.s is a huge problem more than 35 million americans lived in food insecure households in 2019 with a higher number projected because of covid 19. so is this something the biden administration could solve well joining us is craig gunderson professor of agriculture and consumer economics at the university of illinois thanks for being here thank you for the opportunity to talk about this important topic 
Definitely. Well, this seems like a very complex and nuanced topic. So how is it possible that this could be solved in four years? So, I mean, I think it is a complicated, nuanced uh, topic, but the solution to the problem is really quite simple. In other words, just giving people the resources to have enough money to afford food. And the Biden administration comes in with two, two excellent things going for them. First, they have this great program called SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, formerly known as the Food Stamp Program, far and away the most successful government program we have. It sets out to alleviate food insecurity. It does that. Second thing is, is the U.S. has a, just an amazing agricultural supply chain, is that we have enough safe, affordable food for all Americans. And during COVID, it really demonstrated the resiliency of this insofar as food prices didn't rise during COVID. So in other words, the Biden administration inherits, A, the tool to reduce food insecurity and SNAP, and B, they inherit an agricultural supply chain that gives us the means in order to achieve this goal. So I think all of that's interesting, but I always wonder when we're having these conversations about food insecurity, like one, what does that actually really mean, the definition? Right. And then what does a world without food insecurity look like? So is in terms of your first question about what food insecurity means, it just means that somebody doesn't have enough food at some point over the previous year. That's what it means. If somebody in the household doesn't have enough food to eat over the previous year, that is what we mean by food insecurity. In terms of your second question, in terms of alleviating food insecurity globally, that's a much different, more difficult challenge because in a lot of places, you don't have the resources in order to address this. But in the United States, we do have the resources. All we need is the will to address this. Uh, again, we're talking to Craig Gunderson uh, from the University of Illinois right now about food insecurity here in the US and solving the problem. Wouldn't this also mean increasing the minimum wage? Isn't this so also connected to our economy and how we've looked at supporting those in need? So is there's pros and cons to increasing the minimum wage in terms of food insecurity. And I don't wanna go into those now, but what I do wanna talk about is SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, and in the two ways that the Biden administration can increase, uh, can use this to address food insecurity. First, for lots and lots of SNAP recipients, even though they're better off than if they didn't have SNAP, it's not enough to remove them out of food insecurity. So by increasing SNAP benefit levels by about 20% for everybody, the maximum SNAP benefit level, that will reduce food insecurity. The second thing is, right. is that there's millions of Americans who are in households that are food insecure or in danger of food insecure, food insecurity that aren't eligible for SNAP. By expanding the threshold is we can reduce this. So between doing just those two relatively simple things is we could reduce food insecurity by up to 60% in the United States. All right, so you're saying we wouldn't need that increase necessarily in salary and just um, you know helping you pay for your cost of living for this specific topic. For this specific, we could have a long discussion about <laughs> whether the raising the minimum wage is a good idea or a bad idea. In the yeah. specific context of food insecurity, it's somewhat mixed because okay. it probably alludes to increases in food prices and other things. But leaving that aside, as we do, yes. I, I want to talk emphasize what's now. Yeah, and I, I think like Shira mentioned earlier, this is such a nuanced conversation. And if our system here in this country is built kind of off of oppression, and it ha and you have to kind of really talk about this when it comes to food insecurity and the communities that are heavily impacted by it, black and brown communities aren't they hand in hand and one, like really, if you don't just like get rid of one, you can't really get rid of the other. Right. And I also feel the SNAP is particularly important for vulnerable Americans is it's a really a neat way. SNAP, one of the beauties of SNAP is that it gives people resources to go and spend food that is consistent with their family's preferences and more broadly what they think is best for their families. Okay. Which is great. A lot of other programs that we've had historically in the United States are condescending or patronizing to vulnerable households. SNAP is not that way. It gives people the freedom to make their own choices. And I think that's really great about the program. But how does that work when people are freaking out and they're like buying up everything because they're scared of being in a pandemic and like the idea of like not having enough food mm. and people are just kind of selfish. Like, so how does that work on the actual like keeping food on shelves and not... <laughs> especially at the time well, that we're living in, right? Yeah, I, I think that one of the beauties that we learned during the pandemic is that we noticed that even though there were some shortages in f food stores, it was not a big problem. I mean, sometimes 
you know, there wouldn't be enough, like in my case, I didn't see enough pasta sometimes, I didn't see enough pork sometimes, a few of these other things. But in the main is the food shelves were pretty, pretty full and food prices didn't rise much during the pandemic. So that's the good news. The other good news about SNAP is that it was automatic when the pandemic hit, benefit levels increased. And also during that time period is there was more and more uh, people entering the program because of these benefits. Okay, Craig Gunderson. Wow, you just went through that. That's uh, really great. Uh, Craig, again, is the professor of agriculture and consumer economics at the University of Illinois. Thanks again for being here. Thank you. I really appreciate this opportunity to talk about an important topic. Now coming up on the show, the real work that needs to be done to protect all black women. We'll be back with that in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. As we celebrate Black History Month, many people, including us, were highlighting the work of black women who have been central figures of the fight for democracy and liberation. From Ida B. Wells and the suffrage movement in 1913 to Stacey Abrams and her work on the ground with communities and organizations to get Biden and then two senators voted in in Georgia, making the red state blue. Uh, and joining us right now is someone who wrote a beautiful piece in HuffPost about all of this, Aaron E. Evans, who's a senior enterprise and editor of Culture at HuffPost. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So as you wrote in your piece, HuffPost is honoring black women of past and present whose life stories paint a portrait of America. Why was this something that you wanted to focus on specifically right now? Well, you know, when we first start planning Black History Month coverage, it, it happens, I think, much earlier than people think. You kind of have to think about, you know, what is the best way to talk about black history in the moment today? And we started talking about what our coverage would look like back in late October, early November, it, was, it wasn't clear what the state of the nation would look like. Um, and we didn't want something to be too celebratory if we had happened to reelect uh, former President Trump. Um, but we also wanted to speak to really this momentum around conversations about what it means to protect Black women and, and celebrate Black women for the work that they do to make this democracy a democracy, right? And so in thinking about what our coverage would look like, I knew that the work that Black women were doing in this country was going to be something that would be sustainable, but also something that is a timeless thing to talk about, right? And so once I landed on covering Black women, for me, it was a no-brainer to think about so many of the issues and topics that we talk about often around whether it's sexual assault or violence against transgender people um, and thinking about our black girls and, and how they are affected around um, the adultification around gr literal girls who are yeah. seen often as adults, right? Um, and I wanted to really focus on black women who were really doing the work of what it means to protect black women um, and uplifting them in this moment where it's easy to say protect Black women and Black women save democracy and, and all of this, but what does the work actually look mm. like? And the women we featured are, are, are doing the work and we, we want to pull in other communities to be helping in the trenches as well. Yeah, you know, I think about this conversation always in a lot of uh, things like this in, in a very pop culture lens and what we see with, you know, rapper Meg Thee Stallion and, you know, uh, Chloe Bailey from Hallie and Bailey and the, the backlash that, they're, that they constantly get over, you know, them just either being themselves or violence against them happening. It seems like we're in this repeated cycle where, like you said, people are always saying protect black women, but if something goes wrong, it's like they're ready to pounce is is that something that you think is here to stay are these conversations actually sticking what's the point really you know i mean i i hope that the conversations actually stick i mean you know we have an inauguration where you know joe biden is elected as president we have the first female vice president um who happens to be a black woman a south asian woman um in the white house as well and that that representation in the White House is great, but what is, you know, what is the work that comes out of that? Right. What are the policies that are put in place? What are the actions that happen, not just at the federal level, but at the state and at the local level and um, within our communities, right? And so I think a, a prime example of this is 
um, one of our writers profiled Vivian Anderson, the founder of Every Black Girl, which uh, is a nonprofit organization that works to empower and really uplift Black girls. And um, she started the organization six years ago after this viral video um, kind of took the news by storm of a girl in South Carolina who was tackled by a school resource officer out of her out of her chair for some ridiculous reason, right? And we see in the last week in Osceola, Florida, where a girl is body slammed to the ground by a school resource officer, right? So these kind of issues are are very cyclical and keep happening, and we keep having these conversations about protecting Black women and girls. I I hope that there are actionable things that happen from the top down to where we can stop seeing that happen. Um, yes, and we want to actually get into that right after this, including uh, what all communities can do so Black women feel supported, seen, heard, and the weight isn't on their shoulders. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Culture at Huff Post as we talk about the power of Black women uh, for change, but more importantly, what we can do so there's action around this. And in this post, you, um, in this article, you did some amazing storytelling of Ida B. Wells and the moment that she made sure she was seen during a march um, in Washington, D.C. back in 1913. And I thought when you were reading, uh, when I was reading this, uh, about kind of what we see now in modern times. And I was wondering how you reflect it when it comes to black women and white women and just the, the conversation of now what we call feminism and how this plays out. Was there any connection there that you were like, wow, we're kind of repeating ourselves now at this point? I think that anecdote about Ida B. Wells and, and being at this suffrage march in DC in 1913, where, you know, she in Chicago, she has, there were two white suffragists who help her form the Alpha, Alpha Suffrage Club. Um, and they were you know, empowering her to lead this you know, Black organization to get Black women on board in the fight for suffrage. Then Wells gets to DC and you know, Southern white women are like, we know y'all invited her to this and, and, and her organization, but like, we're still racist. Like <laughs> we want the right to vote, but we don't like black people, right? And so there are so many intersections of identities where we where the the uplifting of of black women has to come together, right? And white women have to stand side by side uh, with black women. White women often have to step back and let black women lead in, in moments where. Um, the intersection of race and and sex uh, really collide in a way that can often hold black women down and, and away from progress. And so it's really, it, it has to be a collaborative effort to not just, you know, scream black women saved us, but really listen, listening to them when it, we're talking about policies around maternal mortality or policies around access to healthcare um, and other issues that getting to the point where these things can be actionable, that is, that is the ultimate, the ultimate goal. Yeah. And I think there is that kind of, as you know, like that white guilt that comes in and you're like, we, I don't want you to do all the work. Like, let me help. And how um, can allies and white women uh, work alongside and support? Because like the feeling is like, I feel horrible that this, the weight is on your shoulders right? Like that's just a horrible feeling and you want to do something about it. Is it For possible? Sure. I mean, it's hard. I mean, that's, that's a part of doing the work, right? And like thinking about what access to resources that a white ally may have that she can share with a black woman organizer or even access to other people who might have resources. Maybe you aren't the person, but you, your yeah. friend or dad or cousin or somebody has access to some powerful person who can help open a door or give resources to, to make some of these policy requests or organizations be able to run and, and, and provide the support that, that is needed. I mean, I think about, um, you mentioned Kendall Stevens and uh, the piece she wrote for us around mm -hmm. um, transgender violence. It's like, there's 
you know, Black trans women thinking about housing instability and food instability and the intersection of so many issues that really culminate around their identity, right? And, and the things that they can't get. What are the ways that we can support our most vulnerable? Yep, definitely. That was Erin E. Evans, Senior Enterprise Editor of Culture at HuffPost. You're amazing. Your piece is amazing. Please check it out at HuffPost.com. Now coming up, if you're thinking about gathering for the Super Bowl, Dr. Fauci has something to say. More on that next on What's Trending This Hour. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show, how to know when your anxiety over going outside and socializing is getting bad and what to do about that. Uh, Plus why Marjorie Taylor Greene and Elon Omar are trending right now and why that could get messy. The Washington Post is with us for that. But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. Dr. Anthony Fauci today warned football fans against attending parties to watch the Super Bowl this weekend. Well, you know, every time we do have something like this, there always is a spike, be it a holiday, Christmas, New Year's, Thanksgiving. As you mentioned, Super Bowl is a big deal in the United States. Enjoy the game, watch it on television, but do it with the immediate members of your family, the people in your household. As much fun as it is to get together in a big Super Bowl party, now is not the time to do that. Watch the game and enjoy it, but do it with your family or with people that are in your household. Now, the nation's leading infectious diseases expert cautioned that get-togethers between people from different households could lead to yet another surge in COVID-19 cases. So stay home and, you know, you have to stick this one out. Is that what the saying is? Is just... That's what it is this year. No Super Bowl with people. I mean, do you know who's playing in the Super Bowl, by the way? I had no clue it was this weekend. I feel like we've talked about it, but it's gone. I knew it was this weekend. Is Tim Tebow involved? Girl, you asking me? I was asking you. I don't know. I have no clue. This is very sad, actually. (laughs) No, it's not, because I I wonder. It's mainstream. No, but is the Super Bowl going to be as like big as like it was in previous years? Because it's just different right now. I think yeah, people are inside and bored, and uh, sports fans are dying for something. You know, for this, it's the one thing that helps them escape from the realities of what we're going through. It's the Kansas City Chiefs against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Girl, I don't know. Sorry, you know. everyone. Whatever. That was a bit embarrassing. Uh, now, next up on West Trending This Hour, a Texas woman charged in connection with the Capitol insurrection has asked a federal judge to let her travel to Mexico for a, quote, work-related bonding retreat. This, this goes um, in line with the, the guy who wanted his vegan food or, oh no, organic food in prison. Jenny Cudd, a flower shop owner and unsuccessful mayoral candidate from Midland, wrote to a federal judge on Monday asking for permission to visit Riviera Maya, Mexico for a four-day retreat this month. Uh, The court for her case doesn't yet show a response from the judge, but imagine getting that note. Please, I know I did this and, you know, it was wrong, but can I at least try to become a good person at my Mexico retreat? No, I cannot believe that this woman gets to go on vacation while the one, like one of the few black people that were there, and it was also reported a black man that was there at the, and he got caught. He has been, he can't be released without a bond. Like they got him locked in there. So even in the midst of this situation, white people will always find racism and racism. Mm-hmm. Well, a lawyer uh, representing her also has told CNN that she plans to plead not guilty. Screw her and lock her up. Uh, And finally, one of the biggest protests in history has been happening in India, and no one has really been reporting about this. Indian farmers have been protesting since August 2020 against farm acts that was passed by the Parliament of India in September of 2020. Farmer unions and their representatives have demanded that the laws be repealed and will not accept anything short of it because basically their livelihoods depend on this and these farm acts would take away a lot of money. Uh, The tweets have been censored from Twitter in India, anything relating to this matter. And that was until celebs like Rihanna started posting about what was happening. Uh, She tweeted this and it made headlines, brought a lot of attention to the issue. Why aren't we talking about this? And now others like Greta Thunberg and Mina Harris are showing their support. And actually, Ryan, I want to talk more about this on the show tomorrow um, and why it's so important. 
and why this hasn't really been covered or the issues around that censorship. So stay tuned for that conversation this week. And that was What's Trending This Hour, What's Happening in Entertainment News. I got a fun story coming out of the T-Report today because Justin Timberlake is ready for everyone to forget about one of his most iconic fashion looks. It's time for your T-Report, those pop culture stories trending right now. So Justin is opening up about some of his past red carpet looks, including his infamous all denim matching moment with then girlfriend Britney Spears at the 2001 American Music Awards. Now, during a songwriter's roundtable for The Hollywood Reporter, he said, I confess that there was maybe a period in the 90s where I could skip over some of the outfits that were public, but the uh, internet will never like it or not. Honestly, he needs to get over this because the head to toe indigo look um, is basically one of the most important parts of pop culture. Now for the decision behind the, the whole denim look, we're finally getting some answers. He says, you do a lot of things when you're young and in love. I mean, if my partner ever asked me to wear an all denim look like that, I would have literally called, I don't know, special services to come put him in a straight jacket and lock them up. I don't know. I kind of think it's cute. I am one of those. I, I'm down to kind of play around with stuff like this. For of course you are. You wear event. onesies. Yeah. You have a problem with that, Ryan? I do. And so does the rest of the internet. If you want to know more about these stories, head over to WeirdChannelQ.com. And of course, keep us followed at LGT Show Everywhere. Okay, well, coming up on the show, the signs your anxiety over avoiding people is turning into something worse. We're here to help. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Almost a year into the COVID-19 pandemic, the majority of us have gotten used to staying inside as much as possible and avoided places where people gather. Well, most of us. But when is your anxiety around venturing out a sign of something more serious? Well, clinical psychologist Dr. Josh Claypo is back with us Welcome back, Dr. Josh. It's good to be here. So there's been an uptick in chronic anxiety and agoraphobia. I can barely Mm -hmm. pronounce that. What does that mean? What is agoraphobia? Agoraphobia is a a fear of being in a situation, outside in a situation where you can't control the situation. And Mm -hmm. frankly, a a fear of having a panic attack. I mean, that's really where Mm -hmm. agoraphobia came from. That's what's so interesting is typically we think about agoraphobia as developing when people have panic attacks and they, it, they increasingly decrease the places they go because they're afraid they'll have a panic attack there until which point they only feel safe in their home. That's agoraphobia. But what's happening with the pandemic is we are all being forced to stay in our home, right, more, more than we've ever been. And frankly, we're adapting to it where it's becoming our comfort zone. And so the opposite's happening. We're not having panic attacks, but we're fearful of of venturing out because it's no longer comfortable relative to our home. Even though what we're saying is we want to be with other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but for me, I I think... I was so actually pride. I prided myself on just being a person who was a homebody and like didn't mm-hmm. really like to hang out, and that that was cool. Yeah. Um, but even now, I miss that. I do miss hanging out. Um, but I still even get anxious if I'm like walking my dog and there's tons of people walking around, going outside, no one's wearing masks. And so I do think your surroundings play into why these feel, fears are building up, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's the second part of it, which is the fear of going outside is not just because we're not going outside as much. And you bring up a very good point. Right now, going outside potentially potentially is harmful for your health, right? If there's lots of people without masks, etc. And so what we're going to have to train ourselves to do again, and it's going to happen slowly, y'all, it's not going to happen like, you know, day and night. We're going to have to get comfortable, A, with going outside and and socializing, but B, with knowing or feeling that we're safe in those environments because of what you just mentioned, Ryan. You know, has this person been vaccinated? Are we all vaccinated? Should we? And even when everyone is, because we've been so conditioned, to your point, it's not going to be uncommon for us to go out after everyone's been vaccinated, everyone is okay, and we're going to feel slightly uncomfortable. 
Mm -hmm. uh, you know, do yeah. we go in a crowd? Do we go to a concert? When do we go to the movies? Like all of yeah. that is, is gonna, it's gonna stay with some people. I hate to say this, some people for the rest of their lives, most people, it will, they will be fine, but it's gonna take, I would say at least a year for people to sort of readapt. At the very least, it's gonna take a year. Yeah, Dr. Josh Claypo again is with us right now. What if you get tired when you socialize because you haven't used those muscles? Because I feel yes. like it, it, you get anxious, but on the other side of it, it can make you just like, yeah, tired. That's what I feel, honestly, when I'm with um, anyone, even if it's, I mean, I haven't been with someone outside of my bubble, I guess, for a long time, but even when I'm just talking to people in groups or obviously on Zoom, like I tend to get really tired of socializing. Again, it's we're out of habit. We are temporarily losing our skill set at that. Again, it's not something that's going to go away permanently. And so as we start doing it again, it's it's more effortful. It is more we have to concentrate more. Yeah. We have to think about what we're saying more because we're not that good at it. And so look, the good news about all this is for the vast majority of people, we're all gonna kind of get back to some level that we close to where we were. I think some things will change forever. But for a small number of people, and I, I encourage people to pay attention to this, if you're feeling super nervous and anxious about getting outside, if you literally feel like it's making you an anxiety attack, please go seek some mental health care because this isn't something, this isn't just weakness or something that you should just be dealing with on your own. This is a significant um, impact on thousands, thousands of people. Should people be kind of doing things to to prepare themselves to go out? Like since the vaccine is here, you know, there is some type of light at the end of the tunnel. Should we start kind of start working to combat the PTSD that we might start feeling? I think it's, that's genius. I love that. No, I mean, that's really important. Yes. I mean, you have to be safe, but yes, getting used to going out, maybe right, going out with the mask, right? Going to safe places, sort of venturing out so that it's not exhausting, but also venturing out to see where you're at. Yeah, you know, mm -hmm. if you're that nervous and anxious, it's time to get some help to go, you know, to go and go back into society. So, uh, Dr. Josh, where can people find you on social media? What's your <laughs> handle? It is at Dr. Josh K. They can find me there. And there are mental health resources for everyone in every community. So if you're not fine, please reach out. You don't have to do this alone. Thank you so much for being here. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Wrapping up the show as we always do with our Yes Queen of the Day. Yes Queen. English headmaster came out to his students in a very moving video. And here's a moment from Nicholas Hewlett's announcement. He's the uh, headmaster of St. Dunstan's College in Catford, England. Sorry, I had to put on an English accent as I introduced offensive, that. Offensive, so offensive. <laughs> now, it, it, I find this really beautiful and touching. It's actually LGBTQ plus history month there, which now takes place every February in England. Uh, and in an earlier interview with the Sunday Times of London, uh, they speculated that Hewlett may be the first headmaster to come out to his students in the UK. Really? Ever? Yeah. I don't know. Isn't that I mean, interesting? Well, that's they, what they're saying. There's probably, there was, there's probably plenty of headmasters that were are like, queer identifying but they just never told their students um so that's interesting i mean i think it's it normalizes it even more yeah. students don't care and makes your queer students and trans students feel more comfortable and so i think this is incredible to see and i'm hoping that it inspires so many others across the pond to do the same thing and he revealed that it was really one of his students that inspired him to come forward. He said, I was so blown away by the courage of him that something flipped in my head. I thought then of my own situation and thought, this is ridiculous. Here I am a happily married gay man and the children do not know that at school, which I'm sure a lot of teachers face this, but also principals um, or headmasters. And I just remember, uh, you know, growing up, definitely having a gay teacher um, and, him not being very open at the time about it. I mean, we knew he was that, but it wasn't like he shared that with people as much because it just wasn't um, as normalized then, which is unfortunate. Uh, but how great it is that teachers get to embrace that, who they are fully in their spaces and schools right now. <laughs> oh my God, you're like going on this beautiful 
and there's beeps. and there's like so many horns <laughs> i had a bit of it it wasn't as bad as he thought anyway um he gets our yes queen of the day nicholas hewlett yes queen i'm so ready to be back in the studio <laughs> what are you talking about you like know. so we don't have to deal with like I know. horns and it's like actually sounds just you know it's just crazy so many things are happening outside right now it's real life we're here with you uh and if you want to nominate someone ever for our yes queen of the day just slide into our dms at LGT show everywhere on social media. And that does it for our show today as well. We are back tomorrow, same time here, live right here on Channel Q, 4 to 7 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. We're going to be talking about what Biden can learn from Obama's immigration mistakes. And Congress could finally make life better for parents. And we're going to tell you how that and, of course, what's trending in the news every hour with the T-Report. If you missed anything from today's show or any of our shows, don't you worry, we post everything as a podcast so you can find our podcast on the radio.com app. Just search, let's go there. We are sending you love and light. And honey, remember to slay. See you tomorrow, have a great night. Bye y'all.